so far in the book of Exodus, we've seen the children of Israel delivered from Egypt, a land in which they were slaves uh, to the Egyptians, who they were a blessing to when they first showed up. But over time, they forgot why they were there. The Egyptians forgot how the Israelites had been such a blessing to them, and they put them to forced labor. As they were crying out because of the slave-like conditions, um, God sent a deliverer by the name of Moses. And Moses, by the hand of God, by the instruction of God, in his obedience, was able to bring them out of the nation of Israel, not by might and not by power, but by God's spirit, as he inflicted upon them plague after plague, and then eventually brought them out of the land into the land of the wilderness between there and the land of promise, the land that God promised to bring the descendants of Abraham to. And so we find ourselves in the story where God had given the law to Moses. Moses came down off the mountain to find the people of God worshiping an idol, a golden calf. And at that point, I talked about it last week and kind of poked fun at it, but Moses was so mad at them that he took the law of God that they were breaking and he threw it down on the ground and broke it physically. And so because of that, that testimony of the law must needs be replaced. And so God called Moses back up on the mountain for another 40 days and 40 nights. And he wrote down by the hand of Moses or Moses. It says there in the scriptures that God wrote the law on the tablets. He said, I'm going to write the law. But then in Deuteronomy, it says that Moses wrote the law on the tablets. And so the question becomes, which came first, the chicken or the egg? And I would say God inspired the writing. Moses wrote as though he was the, the pen and the hand of God, and both are true. God inspired it. Moses wrote it. Either way, it's inspired. It's written by God, and it's important for us. Now, the law was never meant to save. It was only to point us to the one who could save us. And so he's coming down the second time from the mountain with these laws. And as he comes down, they're going to get back about the business of the Lord. He's corrected them. He's renewed the covenant that he made with them. And, and because of that, they've, they, after worshiping the golden calf, he had to renew his covenant because it, our salvation is not by... Uh, our works it's by grace through faith and so they had screwed up majorly but God reinstated them and as he does this he's giving them instruction through Moses and Moses built this tabernacle of meeting where he would go in and he would come out of the presence of the Lord and have this glowing shining on his face and as he's getting ready to get back to what they were originally working on which is he wanted them to build the tabernacle he reinstates something he said over and over and over again. He talks about the Sabbath. And why would he talk about the Sabbath? Well, in verse 1 of chapter 35, it says, Moses gathered all the congregation of the children of Israel together and said to them, These are the words which the Lord has commanded you to do. Now, the word Shema in Numbers, God will pronounce a blessing over the people, and it means to hear. But the Hebrew word for hear is not just to listen. It, it tied into the meaning of the word Shema is to listen and to do. They don't have two separate words for it. And so when he says here, these are the words which the Lord has commanded you to do, it's all tied together. 
God doesn't tell us things for vain purposes. He does that. He tells us to do things uh, so that we'll do them. He says, work shall be done for six days, but the seventh day shall be a holy day for you, a Sabbath of rest to the Lord. And whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. So there's consequences for disobeying God's word. But then he says, you shall kindle no fire throughout your dwellings on the Sabbath day. So there's a consequence for disobedience, but there's a blessing to obedience. Now, why were they called to Sabbath? Well, number one, because it was regular maintenance for them as God's people. Rested people work better. It's better for morale. It's better for the physical condition. But also, God's people are called to rest on the Sabbath because it reflects the God that they worship. And we actually see this in the creation story in Genesis early on where it says that God worked for six straight days, but on the seventh day, he rested to set a precedent, to set an example. And so when they rest, they actually, not only do they get rested, but they also reflect the God that you can't see with your eyes. They become a living example of what God does in a human life. And so verse 3 says, you shall not kindle a fire. And the reason that it says this is because in Exodus chapter 16, in verse 23, it says that Moses said to them, this is what the Lord has said. Tomorrow is a Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake today, and boil what you will boil, and lay up for yourselves all that remains to be kept until morning. So essentially on the Sabbath day, they would eat leftovers. So for the people that were getting ready to Sabbath, they had to be intentional about preparing to Sabbath. And so oftentimes we don't Sabbath, not because we don't know we're supposed to, but because we don't prepare to, we don't plan to. He says, hey, if tomorrow's the Sabbath, fire up your ovens today, cook your meals, and then tomorrow we'll eat them, but don't be cooking the meals on the day of. And the idea was even the kitchen staff would get a break. And so he says, be prepared to rest, plan to rest, plan to obey, be intentional about how you serve the Lord. But he said all of this, why? Why is he telling them about the Sabbath again? Because they're getting ready to build the tabernacle. And I don't know about you, but if, if the Lord gives me something to do, I make a construction schedule, and I come up with a material list, and then I start getting my plans together, and I don't want to rest until the work is done. But what God does is he wants us to rest as the work is being done. Does that make sense? God doesn't want us to burn out even doing the holy things he's given us to do. Now, we know that Colossians says that we're to do everything that we do unto the Lord. Uh, not for man, but for, for the Lord. And if we're going to serve the Lord, then we need to serve the way the Lord wants us to serve. It's not so much what we're doing. He's interested in how we do what we do. And so in verse 4, now that they have this uh, they're getting ready to build the tabernacle. Moses spoke to all the congregation of the children of Israel, saying, This is the thing which the Lord commanded, saying, Take from among you an offering to the Lord. So God's commanding an offering. Whoever is of a willing heart, he says, 
Let him bring it as an offering to the Lord. And then he lists gold, silver, and bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet thread, fine linen and goat's hair, ram skins dyed red, badger skins, acacia wood, oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil and for the sweet incense, onyx stones, stones to be set in the ephod and in the breastplate. And so the question becomes, where do we get supplies if we're going to do what God's called us to do? And he says uh, that God commanded an offering from among you. And so wherever God guides, God will supply what is needed for the venture, whatever it is. Uh, And I will tell you from personal experience, this will always be tested. You'll always try to help God out. But if God has guided you to do something, I promise you one of the confirmations is that he will provide what you need to do what he's asked you to do. And I could give many, many examples of this. When we moved down here from uh, Farmington, which isn't very far, we had to sell our house and we'd had to buy a house. And for a long time, we couldn't find a house that didn't need a lot of work to become a house. And so as we prayed and we trusted the Lord, it took longer than we thought. But I look back now and see how he sold our house on the same day that he brought the house up for sale that we were going to buy. And it just reminds me that I didn't come up with this plan on my own but that God confirmed it through making it possible. And if you feel like God's called you to do something and you're always straining to try to make sure that it happens, perhaps the Lord hasn't called you to do that thing. Perhaps you need to hit the brakes, back up, and recalculate. Maybe you need to stop and go, okay, Lord, are you really calling me to this? Because if so, I'm going to wait on you, and I'm not going to make it happen in my own efforts. But if you try to make it happen in your own efforts, you're just going to hit another stone wall the next step. Even if you go into debt, even if you come up with a plan on your own, God's plans, he establishes them. And so he says, take an offering from among you. That means we don't have to fundraise outside of the church to do what God's called to do inside the church. That's why we don't many times. And, and what's crazy is that the church, by and large, many times in order to fund what they're going to do inside the church will go to the world for help and what that says to the world is that our God's not real and and it's just not the case and so he says take an offering from among you so he commands an offering but the next verse in verse 5 he says whoever offers with a willing heart may offer the offering of the Lord so he doesn't force us to do anything he actually says I want you to be willing and then he says let him offer it not to the church, not to the pastor, not to a cause. Whatever you give to God, make it just that. Give it to God. And then whatever he does with it, you won't be upset about because you trust him. You might not trust an organization. You might not trust people. We all have those kind of scars because of things that have happened. But when you give, don't give to a person. Don't give to a cause. Don't even give to a church. Give to the Lord as he directs. And you'll notice that when they give with a willing heart, we'll see at the end, God provides way more than they need. So he says, let him offer it to the Lord. Now, I want to ask this question because I think it's important. All the things that they're getting ready to give to God, where did they come from? He listed out there gold, silver, and bronze. Where are they going to get gold, silver, and bronze? They were slaves. 
Slaves don't own anything. But if you'll remember when they were leaving Egypt, that actually God told Moses, I want you to ask the Egyptians for these things. And then the Egyptians, because they wanted the Israelites to get out of their town because of all the plagues, they said, no problem, here you go. So when he says, give to the work of the Lord gold and silver and bronze and all those things, he's asking them to give the things that he provided for them in the first place. James 1.17 says, every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights, who in whom there's no shadow of turning or variation. He doesn't play favorites. And so God provides the things that we have in our hands, and then sometimes he asks us to be willing to give them back to him. That's what he's doing. Anytime God calls you to give, he's only saying, hey, you know how I've given you this? I want some of it back. And what blows me away is that many times he lets us keep most of it. Why is that? It's all his. And so where did these items come from? They came from the Egyptians. They came from the desert. The place where God had them in the moment had acacia wood and some of these different things. They had goats to get the goat's hair from. Uh, they came from God's creation. Ram skins dyed red. You know, the ram skins, those rams were made by God. And, and But above the stuff, it's important to notice that it's not just about the stuff. God's not interested in your stuff more than anything. He's interested in your heart. If you will give your heart to the Lord, if you'll give your will to the Lord, the stuff will go where it's supposed to. It always does. And, and even if that means that we withhold it from him for a time and then he corrects us. It's th I'm thankful that he does that for me. He shepherds my heart and shows me where the stuff he gave me is supposed to go. Now verse 10, it says, All who are gifted artisans among you shall come and make all that the Lord has commanded. So they have the materials, but now they need laborers. It's one thing to go to Lowe's and buy a bunch of stuff and go, well, this is all I need to build this house. But if you don't know how to build a house and you got all the stuff, it's just a pile of junk, right? Have you ever gone to build something and you're like, well, I want to build this, but I don't know how. And many times we'll go to the Googles. You know, we'll, we'll go buy plans or we'll watch DIY videos on YouTube. And there's some of those things we can do. But this is the tabernacle of God. It had never been built before. They couldn't Google it. It, take aside the fact that they didn't have Google or YouTube, but nobody had ever done this before. It's just like when God called Noah to build the ark. You know, our youth went and looked at this ark encounter, uh, but while they're at the ark encounter, they're looking at something, and it's like, oh yeah, we're, we're looking at it going, look at this cool boat. But Noah didn't know what a boat was. Uh, it had never rained before. And that's a whole other conversation. There, there wasn't boating they were in the middle of a desert, and God said, build this thing, and he described it to him, and then Moses made it out of the materials and with the skills that the Lord had given Moses. And so all that to say, God is going to build a tabernacle for himself through his people, and he, it says here, all who are gifted artisans among you shall make all the Lord has commanded. You might be like Moses and sit there and go, well, that's fine that you gave me all these plans, but who's going to build it? And the, then the Lord here says, all the gifted, skilled laborers, artisans, he calls them, they are already among you. They're amongst the people of Abraham. 
Abraham's descendants. I've already been raising them up. I've already been preparing them. And in some ways, I believe he poured out his spirit in a special way so that they had the ability to build these things. It wasn't just the stuff that we would call church work, like sharing the word of God or, or telling people about what God has done. It was also in the building of things that God was pouring out his spirit. And if there's anything I can encourage you, and maybe you don't feel called to lead worship or play music or read the Bible or teach something in the Bible, uh, but maybe you could build something or hang a TV or, you know, sweep floors. Like, those things are not uh, unspiritual. Colossians tells us we're to do everything that we do for the glory of God. And so he says that these people are among you, and then he lists out in verse 11 through 19 all of the implements that we read about in uh, Exodus chapter 25 through 31. And I'm not going to read them today. You'll have to give me grace on that. I want to have time for communion afterwards. But he says, all the gifted artisans among you shall make all the Lord commanded. So those who are among you that God has gifted are to make these items and to make them the way that God commanded them. And then he lists the items again that we studied. And if you weren't with us, then you can go on our website, avchapel.com, and you can look at chapter 25 through 31, where I went into great detail, probably more than you cared about, into the tabernacle implements. And so, um, verse 20. All the congregation of the children of Israel departed from the presence of Moses. So he shows the need, he stirs them up, he tells them the plan of God, that there are people with the materials, there are people with the skills, and then we're going to build it, but now you're to make an offering. And it says, after he asked for an offering, they all left. But then verse 21, it says, everyone came back. Does it say that everyone came back? No. What it says is, everyone left after hearing Moses, and then everyone came back, verse 21, whose heart was stirred. Now, as a pastor, many times, I wish that more people's hearts were stirred. Sometimes it feels like just a few hearts are stirred. But it says here, everyone whose heart was stirred came back. Everyone whose spirit was willing, and they brought the Lord's offering for the work of the tabernacle of meeting, for all its service, and for the holy garments. The work of the Lord is much. He's trying to reach the whole world through you and I, which is a work in and of itself. But he is not looking for people that feel obligated to serve him. He's looking for those whose hearts are stirred by him and who are, whose spirit are willing to serve him. God doesn't want us to begrudgingly do his work. He's looking for people that are willing, those that are excited about it, those that want to be involved. If you don't want to be involved in something that we're doing, don't do it. Because I don't want you to come and serve and then be all aggravated about it or agitated about it. I would, that's, a, that's not a pleasing aroma to the Lord. When we serve God begrudgingly, you know what it smells like? It smells like a 15-year-old that just got done with basketball practice. That's what it smells like. It's what it smells like to the world too, by the way. When we serve out of obligation, you know what the world smells? sweaty pits but when we serve because God has stirred our hearts and because we're willing you know what it smells like to the Lord awesome 
whatever your favorite fragrance is, that's what it smells like. And it, and it brings back just the desire for the house of the Lord. It draws people to the presence of God in ways that stinky pits will never. And so those whose hearts were stirred by God, whose spirit were willing, and they brought what? They didn't bring their offering. They brought the Lord's offering. When an offering is inspired by God, it's, it, it never feels like you're giving up something that's yours. It feels like you're giving to God what's already his. It's positionally already his, but then practically it becomes his because we literally just let go. And so, verse 22, they came, both men and women, as many as had a willing heart, and they brought earrings and nose rings, rings and necklaces, all jewelry of gold. That is, every man who made an offering of gold to the Lord. Every man with whom was found blue, purple, and scarlet thread, fine linen, and goat's hair, red skins of rams, and badger skins brought them. Everyone who offered an offering of silver or bronze brought the Lord's offering. And everyone with whom was found acacia wood for any work of the service, they brought it. All the women who were gifted artisans spun yarn with their hands and brought what they had spun of blue, purple, and scarlet and fine linen. And all the women whose hearts stirred with wisdom spun yarn of goat's hair. So not only were they stirred to give, but they were also stirred to make things. And, and as they were stirred to make things, uh, the work got done. Verse 27, the rulers brought onyx stones, and the stones that would be set in the ephod of the high priest and in the breastplate, spices and oil for the light, for the anointing oil, and for the sweet incense. So the children of Israel brought a free will offering to the Lord. All the men and women whose hearts were willing to bring material for all kinds of work which the Lord, by the hand of Moses, had commanded to be done. And so the work of God was getting done, even back then, not by might, not by power, but by God's Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. He was inspiring them. He was filling them with wisdom. He was giving willingness to let go. And it, notice here it says, they brought a free will offering. Now, in the Bible, there are many offerings that we're going to get into. I know you guys are excited. When we get to Leviticus, we're going to talk about offerings that are required for sin. But there's also offerings that are free will offerings. They're the ones where it's like, I've already given to the Lord, but because I'm so happy about him and because he's blessed me so abundantly, now I just want to give more. Have you ever been in a spot where you've felt so loved by someone that your only response to them is you just want to do something to bless them. Not because they require you to, not because you have to, you just want to. And when you're in that spot with the Lord, there's a freeing that comes from it because not only are you recognizing it's all His anyway, but it's there's this intimacy to it. It's not about religion, it's all about your relationship with them. And so... They came to offer materials, they came to offer skills, and they even came to offer themselves. And so, verse uh, uh, 23 in Proverbs chapter 4, uh, the writer of Proverbs wrote, uh, Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it stream the issues of life. And 
I have there for you a different translation that says, above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. Jesus said it this way. He said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the abundance of the heart, the life lives. And so with that being the case, all of the offerings they're making, all of their willingness, it has to do with the fact that God has affected more than just their brain, but he's affected their heart, which is actually the center for our reasoning. And I'm pointing at my heart, but in the Hebrew mind, the heart wasn't what pumps your blood. And it's definitely not what makes you have feelings. Because I don't know about you guys, my feelings can change from moment to moment. But when God truly affects my heart, the center of who I am, my identity, my soul, out of that springs what's really in there. Out of that springs a life that's either willing to serve Him or rebellious against Him. And I deeply need the Lord to affect my heart daily. And so, what stirs you? Who stirs you? I say that because um, maybe you're not like me, but you can get stirred up by what's on the news. Maybe, just maybe. Maybe you can be stirred up by what you read on the book of face. Maybe you can be stirred up by what somebody says to you or about you behind your back. Things stir us, don't they? And if you don't think that things stir us, go watch some, uh, you know, like anything. Uh, people get stirred up. I mentioned this morning in first service the movie McClintock. You guys ever seen it? Any John Wayne fans? Now that's not, I thought all John Wayne movies would be like McClintock, and they are not. But it's pretty great. But there's a, 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 there's a scene in there where his wife shows up back in town. She's been gone, and they're not really doing well as a married couple. And he, she's a big pain in his hiney. We'll put it that way. And he's a big pain in her hiney. And when they come together and she makes him mad, he's about to walk out the door and he's frustrated with her and he said, you know, half the world is made of women. Why does it have to be you that stirs me? And the reality is everybody is stirred up by somebody. So the question is for you and I, what stirs us? And I'm going to take you to a few examples to show you that stirring is important in the Bible. In John chapter 5, it says that Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, which means mercy. And in these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, and waiting for the moving of the water. And for some reason, verse 4 says, an angel went down at a certain time into this pool and stirred up the water, and then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. Now this was a place of cultic and pagan worship. But there was a certain man there that was there who had had an infirmity for 38 years. And as this man laid there for 38 years, he was hoping to be healed by these waters. But verse 6 says, well, I'm going to stop there. What I want to point out is though that man had laid there for all those years, that water stirred him with hope that he might be able to get healed. But for many years, even though he was close to the stirred waters, he was never healed. And we'll find out here in verse 6, when Jesus saw him lying there 
and knew that he already had been in that condition a long time, he said to him, do you want to be made well? So the man was stirred, and that's why he was there. Jesus shows up, and he tries to stir this man to see something outside of his circumstances. He stirs up the heart of this man, and he says, do you want to be made well? And the man responds, the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I'm coming, another steps down before me. He's stirred up to anger by this pool because no one will help him in, ironically, in a place called the House of Mercy. No one showed him any mercy. So Jesus shows up to the House of Mercy, and he says, Do you want to be healed? Well, of course he does. And you could probably sense a little bit of frustration in his voice when it says, Sir, I don't have anybody to put me in the pool. Yeah, I want to be healed, but I haven't been healed because no one will help me. But Jesus nonetheless says to him, do you want to be healed or not? And in verse 8, Jesus said to him, rise, take up your bed, and walk. Now he's stirring this man's heart. This man has to make a choice. Is he willing to try and stand up even though he's never been able to? He has to exercise faith. Is he going to be stirred up or is he going to be cantankerous and bitter? Well, he exercises faith and immediately, verse 9, the man was made well. He took up his bed and he walked and that day was the Sabbath. Now, people are going to get mad at him because Jesus healed him on the Sabbath, even though that's not breaking the law. But my point is, is that Jesus provoked him. He said, do you want to be made well? And the man obviously wanted to be made well. But it wasn't until Jesus provoked him with his words that he was made well. And so what stirred that man was Jesus. And because that man was stirred by Jesus, he was made whole. In Mark chapter 15, in verse 1, it says, In the morning the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council, and they took Jesus and they bound him, they led him away, and they delivered him to Pontius Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? He's provoking Jesus, right? And he answered and said to him, It is as you say. And, and the chief priests accused him of many things, but he didn't answer them. And Pilate asked him again, saying, Do you answer nothing? See how many things they testify against you? But Jesus still answered nothing, so that Pilate marveled. Jesus was not allowing himself to be stirred by the world. The world was poking and prodding and going, who are you? Are you really who you say you are? You can't be. They're saying all these things to Jesus, but notice that Jesus would not be stirred by the world. He would not be provoked to wrath. He would not be provoked to sin. But in the meantime, while he's not provoked, he also stirred up Pilate because Pilate, notice, marveled. He marveled at the fact that he, Jesus wouldn't defend himself. So now at the feast, he was accustomed to releasing one prisoner to them, whomever they requested. And there was one named Barabbas who was chained with his fellow rebels. They had committed murder in the rebellion. And the multitude, crying aloud, began to ask him to do just as he had always done for them. But Pilate answered them, saying, Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? For he knew that the chief priests had handed him over because of their envy. 
But the chief priests, notice this, those who were to stir people up to follow God, the chief priests stirred up the crowd so that he should rather release a murderer to them, Barabbas, than Jesus, their God. So Pilate answered and said to them again, What then do you want me to do with him who you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out, having been stirred up by the priest, the world, they, they cried out what? Crucify him. So they were stirred, uh, but they were stirred in all the wrong ways. Acts chapter 6, in verse 8, the first uh, deacon filled with the Holy Spirit, and he'll become the first martyr, Stephen, full of faith and power, did great signs and wonders among the people. He was an effective Christian. And I don't mean that every time that you're an effective Christian, you're doing signs and wonders. But along with his signs and wonders, he testified of Jesus Christ, which, by the way, stirred up people to be mad at him. And then there arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilician Asia, and they were disputing with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. And because they were not able to resist the wisdom with which he spoke, they secretly induced men to say, we've heard him speak blasphemous words. They raised up false witness against him. Verse 12, they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him. They seized him and they brought him to the council. They also set up false witnesses who said this man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against his, this holy place in the law. But my point is, I want you to notice those last two examples. The people that were stirred up were religious people. We as religious people, we as believers, have the ability to be stirred up to love and good works, and we have the ability to be stirred up to rebellion and, and strife. The question becomes, what are we willing and ready to be stirred up, and how does God still stir up his people? Well, here's some ways that the Holy Spirit stirs up his people. He doesn't want us to be comfortable. Did you know that the gospel is not that God came to make us comfortable? He came to make us like Jesus. And so in order for that to happen, he stirs the water. Think about it. When was the last time you uh, took one of those medicines where you plop the thing in the, in the water? You know, what is that? We take that emergency or Alka-Seltzer, and you drop it in the water. It goes down to the bottom, and then it starts to sizzle or whatever. But you have to stir it to make sure that it's homogenous or equally mixed. But if you just let it sit there, at least the emergency, when you, if you let it sit there, it just settles to the bottom. And if I drink that water, it doesn't give me the vitamin C I'm trying to get. So in order for that drink to be effective, I've got to stir it to keep it from going down to the dregs. I've got to stir it so that it actually helps me with what I'm trying to take it for. And in the same way, for us to be effective as believers, we need to be stirred up by the Holy Spirit. We need to be brought outside of our comfort zone. And I say that because in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24, I'll start in verse 23. The writer of Hebrews, who I believe is Paul, 
but some people don't agree with me. Verse 23 says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Well, how do we hold fast to our confession? Verse 24, Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. Don't forsake the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but instead getting together regularly and exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Exhort one another. That word means strong encouragement. That word in some ways means to poke. That word in some ways means to incite or egg someone on. Except in this case, it's not to aggravate. It's not to make them angry. It's actually to provoke them to do what they should do. Isn't it interesting, many times we don't have to be provoked to do the wrong thing, but we do have to be provoked to do the right thing because it takes more energy to live the right way than it does to live the wrong way. It's easy to go with the flow. It's harder to swim upstream. And so he says, provoke one another to love and good works. Another way that the Holy Spirit stirs us uh, is by us intentionally stirring up our own affections for the Lord. Look at 2 Timothy in chapter 1, in verse 6. Paul writes to Timothy, and he says, I remind you, Timothy, to stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. He says, stir up the gift that God has given you. It, it might be said this way. Take what God has given you and make sure you're ready to live it out. How can we do that? By spending time with each other, letting each other prod each other along. I can't tell you how many times I listen, whether it's week to week or, or, or once in a while, I'll be listening to a passage just recreationally to listen to somebody else teach the Bible. And when I hear them teach the Bible, I feel like I ought to shut this thing, sit in the seats and quit because they're so good at what they do. But the cool thing is, is that as I listen to how good they are at what they do, I want to know how they got good at it. I want to know what they do to prepare to teach a message. I want to know what they do devotionally. I want to know how they prepare themselves. And many times, because they're so good at it, I'm provoked to want to get better at what I do. It's like some of your kids that play sports. They're going to watch somebody professionally do it, so that they can kind of get to know how they prepare. So personally stir up the gifts of God that are within you. If you know you're gifted and called to do a certain thing, do all you can to get good at that thing. And anything else you're dabbling in, lay it aside. Forget about it. God's called you to something. That Sometimes that means he's calling you away from other things. Do all you can to get good at what you do. And then another way that the Holy Spirit stirs his people is through reminders. And in 2 Peter, as we've been studying through with the men on Thursday mornings, in chapter 1, verse 13, Peter writes, I think it's right, as long as I am in this tent, to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that I must shortly put off my tent. Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of the things that I've taught you after my death. That's why he wrote. That's why he left behind these letters. And in chapter 3, verse 1, he writes, Beloved, and he's writing to the church, I now write to you this second letter, 
And in both of these letters, I stir up your pure minds. There's that word again, stir. I stir you by way of reminder that you can be mindful, that you can know certain things. And, and he says, uh, you know, he's, he's provoking them uh, to be stirred to love and good works. And in this particular letter, he's saying, because we know the time is short, that Jesus is going to judge the world, that he's coming back for us. Therefore, how are you going to use your time? But all of this stirring has to do with our relationship. It has to do with our relationship with the Lord and his Holy Spirit prodding us and provoking us. It has to do with our relationship with each other, prodding and poking each other. It has to do with those that are within leadership over us, prodding us and poking us to keep us stirred up so we don't get so comfortable and apathetic and complacent in our faith. God has much work for us to do. We're looking at them building the tabernacle, right? That's the purpose of this passage. But there's no tabernacle to build. And I don't know if you noticed, we already got a building. So what are we supposed to be building? We're supposed to be building one another up. We're supposed to be strengthening it. And then also being the change agents that look at each other and judge the fruit and go, hey, I noticed you got some rotten boards in this part of your faith. I know that it's scary to want to be torn down, but can you help can you let me help you tear this down so we can build it back stronger? We need that. We need one another to correct each other. You get to know the people you worship with, not just so you can encourage each other in every little thing, but sometimes God's trying to root out sin in each other. And the only way that we're going to be called on the carpet about our sin is if someone loves us enough and has a relationship with us and can go, hey, I gingerly, kindly, but still rebuking one another and going, hey, the way you were just talking to your wife, that needs a change. Or how you were handling this situation. Don't you know that God's got better for you? And God uses those things, but oftentimes we don't see that as our purpose. And yet if we're all tied together as the body of Christ, then that means each stone that's been built together is going to rub the rough edges off the other one. We are the tabernacle of God. This is the place where God dwells. And so the builders, in verse 30, Moses said to the children of Israel, See, the Lord has called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And he has filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom and understanding and knowledge and all manner of workmanship to design artistic works, to work in gold and silver and bronze and cutting jewels for setting in carving wood and to work in all manner of artistic workmanship. And, so he's called people to do, and he has put in his heart the ability to teach in him and Aholiab, the son of Ahissamach of the tribe of Dan. He has filled them with skill to do all manner of work in the engraver and the designer and the tapestry maker in blue, purple, and scarlet thread, fine linen of the weaver, those who do every work and those who design artistic works. And Bezalel and Aholiab and every gifted artisan in whom the Lord has put wisdom and understanding to know how to do all manner of work for the service of the sanctuary shall do according to all that the Lord has commanded. And so God uses his spirit to fill us so that we are equipped for every good work. But I want you to notice that not only has he called and gifted and filled men to do his work, 
He calls them by name. Did you know that God has called you by name and he has specific things he wants you to, to use you for? But then he's also going to fill you with his spirit so you don't have to do it out of your own resources. You do it out of his resources. He fills you with the ability to do the thing that he has called you by name to do. But then he also fills you with the ability, some of you, not just to do the work, but to train others likewise. As we've grown as a church, I can't teach everybody how to do every little minutia in the sound booth anymore. As we've grown as a church, I don't even know what they're doing in children's church other than the main points. They're leading them in worship. They're teaching the kids. They've got different curriculum. And no doubt, I get to pray with them. I get to help lead them. But by and large, I'm not back there doing the work. I can't train any the next generation to do it. But some are called to not only do the work, but then also train others to do what they're doing, to disciple them in that. And as that takes place, guess what happens? The work multiplies, and more people are set free and equipped to serve in the way that God's gifted them. And, and then it's not up to one person training everybody. It starts to take on the flavor of the different varying gifts and personalities, and God's reaching the people that he wants to within the church and outside of the church. And so they're filled with the ability to teach and to do, and guess what? We need both. I've been guilty of making the joke about how, you know, some are called to do things and build things, and others that can't are called to teach, right? You've heard that said, maybe? You know, those who can't teach? I would disagree with that now, because unless you've done it, you can't teach anybody else how to do it. You can't lead anybody anywhere they've never been. And so, all that said, as we read verse 2 through 7, I'll read through there and make a couple of uh, observations and then we'll close. So then Moses called Bezalel and Aholiab and every gifted artisan in whose heart the Lord had put wisdom, everyone whose heart was stirred to come and do the work. And they received from Moses all the offering which the children of Israel had brought for the work of the service of making the sanctuary. And they continued bringing to him free will offerings every morning. So the offerings just kept coming and kept coming. And then all the craftsmen who were doing all the work of the sanctuary came, each from the work he was doing. And they spoke to Moses saying, hey, Moses, the, the people bring much more than enough for the service of the work which the Lord commanded us to do. And so would this be said of the body of Christ in this church and in our valley and in the United States and across the world. Moses had to give a commandment, and they caused it to be proclaimed throughout the camp, saying, Let neither man nor woman do any more work for the offering of the sanctuary. And the people were restrained from bringing. God inspired so many people to give to his cause and his work that they had to tell people, Okay, stop. We don't have enough room anymore. We don't have the ability to use any. We have all we need. We don't need to ask. It says, and the people were restrained from bringing for the material they had that they had was sufficient for all the work to be done. Indeed, it was too much. Too much. When God's people are taught God's plan and they are given God's wisdom 
and they are stirred or provoked to love and good works by him and they're freed by God's grace from sin and enslavement just like they were from Egypt you know what happens the work of God not only gets done but it overflows God is able to supply above and beyond what we could ask or think they give and they serve freely out of his abundance not because a pastor told him to not because of guilting not because of provoking through you know other means but instead it's a work of God led by the spirit of God and so it overflows like God does into our lives uh, Jesus said in John chapter 7 he said he who thirsts comes to me please come to me and I will fill you with torrents of out of this man that that trust me will come torrents of living water that's not just a splash that's a fountain it's a geyser and, and what's interesting about that is that as that happens, the work of God overflows and people really see who our God is. In Psalm 23, verse 5, the psalmist wrote, You anoint my head with oil. You call me, you give me your spirit, you anoint me for the work of God. And then as you've anointed me for the work of God, my cup overflows. Now, if you have children and they're going to the kitchen and they're getting something to drink, the last thing you want them to do is pour their own because it's going to overflow, right? It's going to spill. It's going to make a mess. But God's overflowing work in our lives is on purpose. He wants his kids to spill. He fills up our cup, and when it overflows, guess who gets hit with the overflow? Everyone around us. We splash. We fill. We cover. We make messes, they rinse clean, and then guess what? Even when he provides above and beyond what we need, physically, materially, that overflow goes into the lives of others around us who many times don't have the overflow. And then we can say, hey, it's from Jesus. He gave me too much, and he gave me too much on purpose. Not so I could hold it to myself, not so I could make bigger barns, but so that you could be blessed. He loves me so much. He loved me too much so that I can love you. That's where the, the love of Christ comes from. And so I just want to reflect on that this morning as we take communion. Father, thank you for your overflowing love. Lord, I believe that in many ways the Christian church in America and throughout the world is anemic not because they don't have good intentions, not because we don't know who you are, and not because you're not supplying. But I think we're anemic, and our growth is stunted because we think we're called to do your things out of our resources. And we just frankly don't have the resources to do what you've called us to do. But I thank you that in everything you call us to do, you supply the supply that's needed to overflow and do everything that you're calling us to do and so much more. And so, Father, this morning, we just thank you that our cup is overflowing. For some of us, our cup's been overflowing and we didn't know why and we're trying to clean up the mess. Forgive us for seeing that overflow as a curse. For some of us, our, our cup is overflowing and you've been showing us needs loosen our hands give us willing hearts to pour out that whatever it is upon whoever you're trying to love through us
there are some who are here this morning that are saying, I, I don't know what you're talking about. My cup is not overflowing. I'm actually really, really thirsty. I don't have any supply. I don't have any hope. I don't have any peace. I don't have any joy. Father, use these in here who are overflowing to pour out liberally upon those who are lacking. It says that when the Israelites went out to gather manna, everybody gathered according to what they thought they needed. And those who didn't gather enough had plenty. And those who gathered too much had just the right amount because they shared. And so, Father, we thank you that you are the God who supplies. And we thank you that it didn't start with our provisions practically. It starts with our provisions spiritually. And so, Father, I pray for everyone here that we know the fountain of living water. That if we've been convicted by the Holy Spirit, that we would just simply receive Jesus. If there's anybody here who's never received Jesus, Lord, remove the veil and help them to see you for all that you are. You are the God who supplies above and beyond what we could ask or think. You've paid the price for our sin. But I also pray that as we recognize your provision and we see how it is that when your work is done by your spirit, that you overflow and you accomplish every task that you have given us, um, that it's only because of Jesus. And so, Father, I thank you for your spirit. I thank you for salvation. And I thank you for buying us back by the blood of your own son. We can only give because you first gave to us the most precious thing that ever existed, your son. And so we celebrate his gift of life and we get ready to take communion together. So Father, as we worship and as the communion is handed out, please search our hearts and let us know uh, where we stand with you. Stir us, Lord, in Jesus' name.